Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. Hey, good morning, everyone. We doing great? We doing great. Hey, take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Uh, We are at the close of our prayer and fasting series, and uh, the whole series has been on Renew. Uh, We've done four weeks on uh, this topic of Renew. We've talked about uh, personal renewal and then corporate renewal uh, having to do with the, the church, so us individually, corporately. Then this past week, we prayed on the nation, for the nation, um, to, you know, there's something about me and this clicker that do not get along. We'll see how it works. National world renewal. And today, we want to talk about ultimate renewal. So I'm going to ask you to buckle up, because I have a lot to say in a short amount of time and pray that God would make me concise, but at the same time, at the same time, focus. I also want to cast forward to say next week we're going to begin a series on uh, Old Testament renewal, renewal in the Old Testament. We're going to look at the book of Ezra uh, for five weeks. So read the book of Ezra before next Sunday. That is your homework assignment. Uh, read the book of Ezra to kind of get queued up on that, and then we'll talk about Easter renewal through Jesus. Then we'll talk about uh, how does renewal affect us personally. We'll talk about stewardship. Uh, So we've got a great spring of uh, teachings and life about how does a renewal affect us. But today I want to talk about uh, ultimate renewal. To talk about heaven, new heaven, new earth, and how that should affect us now how the teaching on heaven should affect us. So if you take notes, you're going to have to write really fast um, because, again, I do have a lot I want to say about this topic. Um, And this isn't going to help me any at all. Philippians 3 says this, I strain to reach the end of the race and to receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us up to heaven. In the message, it says it this way. Um, Mary Jo, you're just going to have to change it for me because I can't work this. I've got my eyes on the goal. God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I am off and running and I'm not turning back. Let's keep focused on that goal. Those of us who want everything that God has for us. This week, uh, this year, these past couple of years, you may have been running a frantic race where you're just busy all the time and you're, you, you feel like your wheels are spinning and you're, you're always busy, but you're not making progress like you want to. Or maybe you're running a frustrated race where you feel like everything that you do is amounting to nothing. And, and I want to say that ultimately Paul is saying in this passage If you understand where your finish line is, it will help you run your race effectively. Let me say it again. If you know where your finish line is, it will help you run the race effectively. You won't run it frustrated. You won't run it frantic. You will run it with purpose. Can you imagine going out and running a race, having no idea where the finish line is? Having none, just say, the gun goes off, boom, you're running and you're like, where where am I headed? Sometimes we run the Christian life in this way, and and Paul makes it clear you do have a finish line that you're aiming for, and that finish line is, is heaven. Now, I don't, I've over the years talked about, there are some places that so focus on heaven, they don't talk about earth very much, but there are other places that never mention heaven. And, and I don't think we can effectively run the race if we don't understand where our finish line is. Um, I have a picture here. This is me. Um, I'll, 
I have to use some running analogies. I'm sorry. Just hang with me. <laughs> this is me at mile 24 of the Boston Marathon. Now, <clears throat> I look terrible in this picture, but honestly, I feel worse than I even look in this picture. <laughs> uh, because the last couple of miles of a marathon, for those of you who run it, there, there, there's no joy. All you're trying to do is get, get, get to the finish line. And this was one of my goals in life was to run the Boston Marathon. I qualified for it, and I went and ran it. Dave and I and Nate, we all started around the same time. We didn't finish together, but we started around the same time. Then we finished the race. We're done, and I, I, I am freezing, like freezing cold. It, it was cold in Boston that day. It was very windy. Uh, I, I'm so cold, and um, our hotel is a ways away from the finish line. And I'm thinking, I do not want to walk back to the hotel. It's at least a mile or a couple of miles, I think, to the hotel. And so um, I find Nate, I find Dave, and I say to them, um, let's, let's take the subway. And oh, by the way, does anyone have any money to get on the subway? And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm hopping it. I'm hopping the turnstile. I'm, I'm too tired to even fight with this. I know. It's a totally ungodly attitude. You're like, my pastor's going to cheat? Yes, I would have hopped the turnstile. Now, ultimately, uh, I found out when we got to the turnstile that all the runners get to take the subway for free that day. You have a free access, which I didn't know, but I was still hopping. Uh, I was still saying, I'm undeterred. My finish line was the finish line, but now my finish line is the hotel. And we're walking back to the hotel, and on the way, I said to, to, to Nate and Dave, I, I, I'm starving to death. If I don't get some food, I think I may not even make it to the hotel. Now, uh, the, uh, Kathy and Lynn Malik, and um, they took this picture of me running, and when they walked by, this is where they found us, at Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, just gorging ourselves. We had enough money to buy a donut uh, and to, to, to kind of replenish our, our, ourselves. Uh, it, to me, it's just an illustration. We, we've got to aim for a finish line. We've got to know where we're going. And C.S. Lewis says it like this about heaven. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christian who did most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next world. You know, you've heard it said that people are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. And C.S. Lewis is kind of reversing this a bit to say, look, if you don't understand where you're headed, you're not going to get what you need here now. We need to be effective. And to be effective, we need to know the race we're running. And to run the race we're running, we need to know where the finish line is. Uh, there's so little in theological books actually written on heaven. And um, 15, 20 years ago, I did a, a whole series, like a six-part series on, on heaven. And so I'm trying to preach the whole six-part series today, uh, right now. So um, here we go. It says in Revelation 21, and I'm going to keep punching this screen, which will do me no good either because that's my habit. Revelation, I know you do, Mary Jo. It's just a habit I have of punching the screen. You should see me last week. If you watched the video of last week when it didn't work, I was still punching over here to nothing that was working. Revelation 21, verses 1 and following. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making, what? Everything new. Skip over to chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the, listen to this, healing of the nations. A national idea. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This picture of ultimate renewal, picture of ultimate reality, there's so much symbolic in this, and we, we at times have trouble deciphering what is the symbol and what is the reality. What is it going to look like uh, that John describes versus exactly? And there are some people who interpret it as this is exactly what it's going to look like, and others who say it's all merely symbolic. Wherever you stand on that spectrum, there are some truths about heaven and ultimate reality that I think everybody can agree on. So what I want to do in the time we have is to answer five questions about heaven. Five questions about heaven and get some answers from this passage and some other passages in the New Testament. If we're going to aim for this finish line, what are we even aiming for? Okay, you ready? First question, where is heaven? Where is heaven? Um, this passage, um, go to the next slide, Mary Jo, sorry. Um, it's, I, I put this idea that it's the next dimension right around the corner. This idea of this next dimension. I read an article uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, where these scientists are studying consciousness, um, trying to, you know, we think of consciousness as a, something that's unmeasurable and unknowable, but these guys are studying it as if it's a reality, trying to find out where it is in our brain. And it's kind of a But here's the paragraph that got to me. It says, consciousness is a quantum wave that passes through these microtubes that are in our brain. And that, like every quantum wave, of course, that, like, you know quantum waves, right? Um, everybody up on their quantum wave theory here? Every, <laughs> and that, like every quantum wave, it has properties like superposition, the ability to be in many places at the same time, and entanglement the potential for two particles that are very far away to be connected. Now listen, I don't want to pretend that I know Jack about quantum physics, uh, but I do understand a couple of things. One is that the, the string theory of that it goes, things, things are not like on, on a, a line. There's an entanglement where they're not far away from each other, uh, according to quantum physics and theory. Uh, anybody watch the Big Bang Theory? Uh, you can kind of pick up all your quantum physics right there on the Big Bang Theory. And, and the ability to be many places at the same time. There, there's an aspect of dimension of heaven that we don't quite understand, but we don't understand the natural reality around us. So when we ask most people, especially Christians, where is heaven? You know, we just point up. Where's hell? It's down. Why? Well, we've been taught because the Bible talks about the heavens. The heavens, the first heaven, second heaven, third heaven. First heaven being kind of like the atmosphere right around us. Second heaven being the stars and planets. And the third heaven, where God dwells. Paul was caught up into the third heaven. He, he talks about that. Um, what, we, we don't know exactly where heaven is. But it's not an imaginary place. There's a reality to it that we simply cannot see. Um, in, in the psalmist says this, I lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. So we get this natural upward movement of the idea of heaven. Here's my answer to this question. I, I don't know where heaven is. But I know that there is a reality that we cannot see that is it's the next dimension right around the corner. There is a reality to it. Second question is this, what is heaven like? 
What, what is heaven like? And here's where, for me, this is really critical. Um, the idea that heaven is like floating clouds with harps, um, you know, I'm floating on a cloud for all eternity, plucking a harp. Um, is that really that appealing to you? For me, not so much. I, I, I don't see, we've got this picture of heaven, and we've seen movies that have tried to, to and it's always got a smoke machine. Uh, wherever heaven is, in the movies, it's always got like you're walking through clouds, kind of smoky clouds. And, and there's this nature to it that I don't think is actually li line up with the Scripture. Here's what it says in Revelation 21.1. First, uh, First Corinthians 2 says this. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. There's a revelation about this place, what we're going to be doing in heaven. And in Revelation 21.1, John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So, what is heaven like? Here's my, my interpretation of these passages about the reality of heaven. When you die, you immediately go to a place where you're in the presence of God. To the thief on the cross, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And there is a, there is a dimension of soul aspect of this heaven, where after we die, we're immediately there with him. But the book of Revelation and the book of Corinthians both identify that that is not the final, so to speak, heaven. That there is going to come a time when there's going to be a new heaven and what? A new earth. And we, I believe, will inhabit this new earth. The heaven is, is not, to me, some ethereal place. C.S. Lewis, other authors have very well articulated the physicality of this new heaven and new earth. That when we, we'll talk about our resurrection bodies in just a moment, but it's not just a place where souls are floating around. Our ultimate end line is we'll be inhabiting a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, it says in Hebrews that they were looking, talking about heaven, followers, they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. And this homeland, according to Philippians, uh, what Paul says, but our homeland is in heaven. Uh, this, this final home, this final resting place, this final, and by the way, I, I don't have time to get into all of this, but I think there's going to be work in heaven. There's going to be work on this new earth. Um, there, there's going to be something for us to do. God created work. Our problem is We've never experienced work without the curse. So work is a four-letter word to us. Um, we work all our lives so that we can do what? Exactly. Retire. I'm aiming for investing in all of... Now, I, honestly, retirement doesn't really hold that much appeal to me. I'm sorry if, you don't, if you're ready for me to go. Um, <laughs> I understand, but I'm not quite there because I'm like, what would I do? I'd rather do this. This is so much fun. Uh, being with the people of God all the time and teaching the Word of God and the staff we have to work with and the elders, I'd rather keep doing this. So, I am. Um, but ultimately, my homeland is still not even here. My homeland is where? It's in heaven, and it's a reality. And when we get there, I think there will be an aspect of work that we do. Uh, rather than floating on clouds, playing harps, we're going to be doing something. Now, honestly, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think there's a physicality to it that we at times don't interpret. We don't look at this idea of what is this new heaven and new earth. Um, it says in Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. 
you will fill me with joy where? In your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Uh, we are at the right hand of God. What is heaven like? It says in Revelation 21.4, you will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's this new coming and old that's passed, passed away. Third question, who are we in heaven? So what is heaven like? I think it's a new heaven and a new earth. Um, and as a result, who are we in heaven? We are the new us, uh, so to speak. This passage uh, speaks to this, Mary Jo. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians. But Paul makes it clear back in 1 Corinthians, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What is he saying? He's talking about in 1 Corinthians that when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will what? Will rise, and who will meet them in the air? Those who have, Jesus, and those who have passed away before. And we will inherit this resurrection body. Those who are dead will get their new, new bodies. Um, what is this body like? In 1 John, he says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, what, who will we be like? We're going to be like Jesus, for we shall see him as he is. So when this time comes, when Christ returns, we will inherit this resurrection body, which is like the resurrection body of Jesus. Jesus was both recognizable and not recognizable at the same time when he rose from the dead. There was a physicality about his body where he encourages Thomas to touch him and to feel his hands. Um, he was, at the same time, there were things about this body that are unexplainable. Like he was in the upper room when all the doors were closed. He was on the road to Emmaus and talked to the, the guys on the road to Emmaus and then he wasn't there. But he cooked and he ate with them. So there's this both physicality to it and at the same time a uniqueness to it. Um, we will inherit a body. Jesus is the first fruits and will inherit a body like his. Have have I entered into such elementary mysticism that you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Here's what I want you to, I'm trying to paint this picture that our ideas many times of heaven are so short-sighted that uh, the best we can hope for is this eternal choir practice, um, which isn't, I don't mind, I, I know we're, we'll be worshiping in heaven, but there's so much more. I think that awaits us on the other side when we reach the new heaven and the new earth. So my theology from the New Testament speaks of this. We die. We go to be with God now soul-wise. And then when Christ returns, we inherit this new body, this new physical body that will then inherit the new heaven and new earth. Um, the bridal feast of the Lamb, to me, has a real physicality to it. Uh, I, I don't know how a soul eats at the bridal feast of the Lamb. Uh, but I do believe that once we, at that time, inherit our resurrection bodies, then we'll, food's available. Uh, the banquet table is being set. And this finish line... now. By the way, I'm going to show you in just a minute. I think this has implications for our life now. If you hang with this, if you believe in this ultimate renewal, it should change the way, as C.S. Lewis says, that you live your life here right now. Here's the next question. How do I get to heaven? How do I get there? Now, I want to make this absolutely clear. There's a, a, an old Peanuts cartoon, and uh, he, he says, 
He says, I have a theological question. Lioness is talking to Charlie Brown. I have a theological question. When you get to heaven, are you created? Um, I can't read. Are you created on a percentage or a curve? To which grace is a curve to me, by the way. And uh, he says, Charlie Brown, on a curve, naturally. Lioness says, how can you be so sure? Charlie Brown says, I'm always sure about things that are a matter of opinion. It cracks me up because, yes, sometimes the things we're most sure of are the things we only have an opinion on. But how we get to heaven is not a matter of opinion. How we get to heaven, I believe, is absolutely biblically clear. Uh, this passage says, uh, Jesus, speaking of himself, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Please listen to me. There are, on the earth, so many different opinions about how you get to heaven. And the Bible, our belief in the Bible is this, there is only one way, and it is through Jesus. I once heard a famous pastor say, when he was asked, aren't there many roads to God? And he said, he said, I think there are many roads to Jesus, but there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It says in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This famous sermon by Peter in front of the Sanhedrin and in front of people saying there's no other way to be saved except through Jesus. It says in 1 John 5, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God, what? Does not have life. The only way to heaven is by the grace of God Receiving Jesus Christ as the one who forgives your sins and leads your life. It is the only way. Now, we, in our natural bent, we many times think this sounds so unfair. We think, isn't, if God really loves everybody, shouldn't he just, um, you know, is he really going to send good people to hell and not let good people in heaven? And by the way, I, I want to say uh, the Bible answers this question very clearly. There is no one righteous, no, not one. All our works are as filthy rags. So our idea of what is good and God's idea of what is good are totally different. God doesn't send good people to hell. Good people decide to refuse to receive Jesus and make their choice on their own about their eternal destination. The Bible, again, is very clear about that. But what I want to offer to you today is this. Here is the path to life. It is through Jesus. It is through Him. And it's the only way. And the Bible also makes it clear that there is no way you can work your way into this place of righteousness. It says in Ephesians that it is by the grace of God that you have been saved. Through faith. Through faith. And that's not even from yourself. It is a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. The only way to go to heaven, the only way to receive life now, eternal life now, is through, is through Jesus. If you're here today and you're like, Pastor, I, I want to go to heaven, but I, I don't know that I've ever received Jesus as the one who leads my life and forgives my sins, I want to tell you, this can be the day of salvation for you. You may have been a member of fullness your entire life, and you've heard all the stories about Jesus, or maybe some other church, and you've heard all the stories about Jesus, and you believe there's a guy named Jesus, and he was a good guy who was a great teacher, who some bad people killed. And so, yeah, I believe in that kind of, that kind of Jesus. That is not the same as following Jesus. Following Jesus entails you saying, by faith, I receive Jesus as the one who leads my life 
and forgives my sins. I, I, I choose by his grace to receive his faith and walk in faith with him. And when that day happens, when that moment happens, you are now, you may say, well, then I'm guaranteed this eternal life. Here's what I would say. You're in eternal life right now. Your life, though physical will, physically will end, it, you're, you're going to just keep going and changing and developing and things will happen. You receive eternal life and you walk in it now. And as a result, in Revelation 21, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for an old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Hallelujah. That's you. He is making everything, everything new. So how does heaven help me today? Just a couple of thoughts about heaven helping us today. First is this. It gives us a proper perspective on suffering. If you're suffering today, there's a scripture uh, that goes with this. Um, it says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. So the idea being that suffering now produces in us something for eternity and that we have nothing to fear uh, in suffering. It gives us a proper perspective on suffering. I'm not going to fear those who make me suffer. Yesterday we were looking at this passage from Acts 4 uh, where the followers of Jesus have just healed a guy they preach the gospel. They're called before the Sanhedrin who killed, really put Jesus to death. And they, they're like, hey, in whose name did you heal this crippled guy? And they're so bold. They're like, eh, it's in the name of Jesus who you guys killed. That's how we're doing it. Now, the religious leaders are really angry because they did help in this process. Uh, but Peter and John are so bold. Why? Because they're like, hey, if they kill us, so be it. Suffering, suffering is not that big a deal. So the, the leaders tell them they can't do anything to him because the crippled guy who was crippled since birth and everybody knew it was standing next to him healed. So they couldn't do it. So they put him on double secret probation and they send him out to go back and say, don't do this again. Don't preach in his name again. And they're like, well, we can't help it. We're going to preach his name again. Now, they go back to a prayer meeting in the church. And if it were you or me, most of us, I did this devotion yesterday, but if it were you or me, most of us would be like, oh, God, protect us. Oh, God, remove um, this. Oh, God, put a hedge of protection around us so that they can't affect us. No, they go back and say, God, give us more boldness. Give us more in your name to, to, to step out in faith. To proclaim the gospel with power. Why? Because they understood that this suffering, this light and momentary affliction, as Paul says in Corinthians, these troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. If you have a proper understanding of heaven and where the finish line is, it allows you to endure suffering now because you know that it's all going it's all going to him. Next thing it helps us do is it, it guides us to invest wisely. I've heard a lot about investing recently, and especially as I've gotten older and there's retirement and everything that's going on, this whole idea about investing is a big deal for you know that retirement I talked about. But God has called us to invest wisely. Why? Because where is our investment ultimately? In that which is eternal. That's the, that matters. He says, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The more you accumulate here now, the more that's just going to burn after you die. But the more you accumulate in heaven, the more that it's going to be, there's an eternal reward, an eternal destiny, a, Invest in what is eternal, not as what is 
temporal. David Geffen said this. He said, anybody who thinks money will make you happy hasn't got money. Because once you get money, you realize it's not the source of my happiness. It will not make me any happier. Matthew, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself where, what? Treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We need to be invest. If we get a proper view of heaven, and again, I'm just giving you a, a, a slice today, but if you get a proper view of heaven, you'll invest wisely because your investment is there. And then um, D.L. Moody had this famous saying, which is this, gold is a bad life preserver. <laughs> it's not going to help you, ultimately. And then finally, it... A proper view of heaven will move our heart towards what really matters. What really matters. We'll be able to look around us. Listen, Jesus has a lot to say about don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. And yet, most of us in this room, we spend a good deal of our time worrying. Worrying. But if you get a proper view of heaven, instead of worrying... What it will help you do is it'll help you um, seek after the Word of God. Mary Jo, just go ahead and put all these up because you've got to. Um, it'll help us. It'll help us to spend time in God's Word to see what He has to say about things in eternity, rather than worrying. It'll give us uh, time to worship. Think of the time you would have if you quit worrying. Take your worry and instead go to worship. I heard a story about a guy who was like uh, in, in major debt. Everything around him was, is, is just falling apart. And this friend of his says, hey, how come you're not worrying about all this stuff? And he said, oh, I'm paying this guy. I'm paying a guy $50,000 a month to worry for me. <laughs> and the guy goes, $50,000 a month? How are you getting $50,000 a month to pay Pay this guy. And he goes, oh, that's his worry. <laughs> that's not the, I'm not talking about just denial of reality. Some of you are going to go, home and, oh, wait, I got it. I got it. What is it? <laughs> we don't have to worry because our, our home is assured. Our future, our destiny is, is where God says it is. And instead, we can worship, we can witness, we can share our faith with others. If you really believe that the only way to get to heaven and to spend eternity with God is Jesus Christ. Should it not stir us to share with others this truth? That every person we lock eyes with when we leave this place has an eternity in front of them, either eternity with God or apart from God. And it should stir us to want to share with people. It'll help us to work better. Um, one of my favorite authors, um, Paul Bilheimer, says this, Therefore, from all eternity, all that precedes the marriage supper of the Lamb is preliminary and preparatory. Only thereafter will God's program for the eternal ages begin to unfold. God will not be ready, so to speak, to enter upon his ultimate and supreme enterprise for the ages until the bride is on the throne with her divine lover and Lord. Up until then, the entire universe under the sun's regulation and control is being readied by God for one purpose, to prepare and train the bride. He goes on to say that when we're ready for the throne, God will have a throne ready for us. We're destined for the throne of God. We're working, we're now, it's not work unto salvation. It's a work that's a response to the grace. We are God's workmanship, created in advance to do good works. Except we understand these good works don't come for us to receive, but rather as a preparation for what's eternal. A week ago, this morning, about this time, Tim Finch texted me that... Um, Miriam uh, was passing away. Um, for those of you who don't know Miriam, 
Um, for those of you who are new to fullness in the last couple of years, you probably wouldn't know Buddy and Miriam. Um, in the first year of our church's life, in 1993, we were in a little place over by Chuck E. Cheese that was really tiny, and we didn't have many people coming. We had started this church, and most of us were younger. I was 34 at the time, and um, John and Gwen were actually our oldest. Where are John and Gwen? I saw them this morning. There they are right there. I made everybody move, and now I can't find you guys. <laughs> John and Gwen were the oldest members of the church at the time. And while we were at this place, um, most of the people that were coming were in my age demographic. But suddenly, out of nowhere, this old couple shows up, um, Buddy and Miriam. And I'm like, uh, you know, they're a little bit older. I don't think they're, I don't know that they're going to fit into the style of worship. I talked to them. They came from a Methodist background, a lot of stuff. And, but they're like, nope, this is where God is directing us. Now, by the way, I went back, and this old couple that came to our church, they were younger than I am now. So everything is like perspective, right, of what you... Uh... Buddy and Miriam gave their lives to this place in the early days and throughout. Miriam provided, honestly, pastoral care for so many people in this place. It was her heart to care for Every time someone went in the hospital, Miriam was the one who was there. She was the one sitting with family. She was the one taking people to the doctor and to, to the hospital. She provided care. She loved people and provided care for them. She was a grandparent to so many of the kids in this place. Um, my own kids, um, for instance, Caleb, who's on the front row, Mr. Buddy did Pine Box Derby with Caleb, built it, went through it, did it with him. They built it together. Um, many of you here have pens that were made by Mr. Buddy. Um, they were wooden. and they... Buddy and Mary went to my kids' grandparents' day at school. They were the grandparents, because my parents weren't here and weren't available. They were distanced from here. Um, they went to all the grandparents' day. When they could go, poor Cheryl Ross had to go. And she's, yeah, it's a funny story. But um, last Sunday afternoon, Kathy and I went to see Miriam. She's in the hospital in ICU. Tim has already told me she's passing away. We go into the room, and I expect Miriam to be in a position of like where she can't talk. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms where people were dying. Uh, just part of my position. We walked in, and she's like, thank you for coming. I am so glad you're here. Now, at first, I'm not even sure she knew who we were. Honestly, Miriam has had dementia for several years, and there are times I wasn't sure when she knew who I was. But at this time, I'm... She asked me about the church, how is the church. Um, she asked me about my family. Um, she asked about Olivia specifically. Um, she asked, and she was just so grateful and thankful and joyful. By the way, this is a side point, but when I left, I said to Kathy, if that's what dying looks like, count me in. And I said, by the way, if I'm the one in the hospital room dying, don't let anybody come see me. Because I'm not sure I've invested that much into joy and to gratitude that what all that's left of me, that's what's going to come out. You know what I mean? If, all, if the very dregs, so to speak, of your life are joy and thankfulness, isn't that an incredible life? Miriam said to me, because she was repeating herself, but she said to me at least four or five times, I am ready for the next step. I am ready for the next step. And this week she took the next step. Her next step was not like, I'm going to walk around the hall. Or the next step is I'm going to go back to the facility. She knew that the next step was 
was in glory. Here's my question to us today. Are we ready for the next step? That next step has a reality to it that we will all face at some point. That reality can only be accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way is through Him. But it's not just that you come to faith now and then you just kind of drag your life out until Jesus either comes back or till you die. But you live out that faith every moment of the, every day with eternity in mind. Because if indeed C.S. Lewis is right, that the only people who make a difference in this life are the ones who have a view of that life, then I want to be one of those who makes a difference by having a view of ultimate reality. You see, the things that we have around us right now, this is not ultimate reality. This is temporal, which means it will all pass at some point. But God's promise is that there is a reality that is yet to come. Not to overdo the C.S. Lewis quotes, but at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, and one of my favorite sections of literature, he's talking to the children who have been coming in and out of Narnia. They've been going from Narnia back to this world. And at the end of the last battle, um, they're there because of a train wreck, and they're, they've been transferred into Narnia, and, and they're afraid that they're going to have to go back to the world. And they look sad, and so the lion Aslan says to them this, no fear of that, speaking of going back. He said, there was a real railway accident. Your father and mother, and all of you, as you used to call it in the shadow lands, are dead. The term is over. The holiday has begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at least they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. In that beautiful writing, C.S. Lewis paints for us a picture of ultimate reality. That it is not the end, but it's a door into this eternal aspect that we will all, if we know Jesus Christ, one day inherit. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he is transported into a heavenly worship service now to see what's going on. And there's a scroll that's written and he knows that this scroll is really important. And he knows that it has to be opened. And he looks around in this heavenly worship service that's going on. And there is no one worthy to open the scroll. And he begins to, begins to weep over, over this um, fact that the, the scroll can't be opened. And one of the elders turns to him and says, hey, don't weep. Look, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy to open the scroll. And the lion, Jesus, comes and opens the scroll. And here is what John says in Revelation 5. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And I think he's talking about the new earth. 
by the way, in this passage. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We uniquely have the moment to join in with all the heavenly hosts who are singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This morning, before we leave here, we want to sing this song of glory, of declaration of worthiness to the Lamb. And my prayer is this, that as you go from this place, you'll, you'll keep your eyes fixed on the finish line, but an understanding that you need to run the race well. That every moment of in, every day in this race, you are not running. You're not training as one without purpose. You're not training as one who has no end in sight. But you're wanting to take other runners with you. Others on this journey with you. As you both worship and declare and see his purposes accomplished earth. Stand with me if you would. Lord, we thank you and praise you and thank you that the eternal destiny that you have for us is it's promised. It's assured. In faith, we can walk it out. In worship, we can declare worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory and power because you are worthy. What is worship but declaring your worthiness? So today, Lord, today we just join with what's already taking place in heaven and what will be part of eternity future in our declaration of unhindered fellowship with you. Lord, we can't wait to see you face to face. We can't wait to fellowship with you. We can't wait. Lord, to, as Miriam said, take that next step to be present with you, to do what you've designed us to do for all eternity. Let me just encourage you in the moment ahead just to lift your voice in praise before the Lord, declaring that He is worthy. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.